You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found a stone rolled away in the tomb, but when they entered, they they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. (laughs) Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. They did not believe the woman because their word seems to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Happy Easter. You guys are looking good, I've got to say. So many colors and florals. We are, I definitely think we're looking our best this day of the year. Um, Before we we jump in, I just wanted to share that um, in our worship, as we were worshiping, I just had this vision of this room. And the ceiling was just like flooded with light. And there were just thousands of tiny seeds just floating towards us. And you may be familiar with the parable that Jesus tells about the sower going out to sow seed. And the seed represented the word of God. And you may know that uh, for some, you know, that the path was, was there, that the seed fell on the path or the, the soil was shallow or the seed, the word of God was, was kind of squashed out by just like the cares of this world and trouble. But when the seed fell on good soil, a crop was harvested 30, 60, 100 times fold what had been given. So would you just join me for a second in praying that the seed falls on good soil today? Let's just pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, you are the word of God. You are the words of life. Where else would we go this morning? And Jesus, I just want to pray. Would you open our ears to hear and understand your word this morning? Lord, would you soften the soil of our lives, that your seed, your word, would fall on good soil this morning. We open ourselves up to your presence. Come and speak to us. Lead us by your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So I have been listening to Easter Sunday morning sermons since I was a tiny little girl, but I confess that I don't remember the outline or the three main points of a single one. So you're all off the hook if you talk to me at the picnic later. Um, but what I do remember is how Easter Sunday morning felt. I grew up in the Salvation Army, which uh, for me, Easter Sunday morning meant that we would march through the streets of our neighborhood to the sound of a drum and the literal sound of trumpets. Um, during the service, the choir would sing uh, one of my favorite songs, during which they would get to the end and they would stop singing and they would begin chanting, first with a whisper, he is alive, he is alive. He is alive, 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 he is alive. And it would build and build and build until those 40 people would burst into four-part harmony singing hallelujah. I don't really remember much of what was actually preached, but I do remember the sense of electricity in the air. I remember the sense of wonder and anticipation and attention and even as a small child, I somehow knew that my little life was caught up in some big, beautiful cosmic story. I am fully aware this morning that for those of us who have gathered in this space, maybe for some of you, that's your story. You've known Jesus since you were a little child. For many of you, you come here every Sunday. You're pretty much part of the furniture. Welcome uh, again. But I realize that for some of you, this experience might be really new and unfamiliar and maybe even a little bit uncomfortable. And to you in particular, I just want to say I'm so glad you're here and you're welcome here both today and any other Sunday that you may want to come. So today I get to share with you the wild and wonderful, simple yet scandalous, free yet costly gospel of Jesus Christ. The Greek word euangelion is where we get the word gospel or good news as it's often translated in scripture. The gospel writers use this word nearly a hundred times in the gospel narratives and yet they did not invent it. This word euangelion was already used in the Roman world and it was used in a very specific way. So a decade before Jesus was even born, a stone inscription was made related to Octavian, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar. And after Caesar was assassinated, Octavian, or Augustus, as he became known, ascended to the throne. Here's what was written on that stone inscription. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. You see, the word euangelion or gospel was only used to describe an objective history-changing event that everyone needed to know about because it altered everything for everyone. And this gospel not only needed to be engraved on a stone tablet, but it needed to be announced. The word needed to go out in letters and messengers would be sent far and wide to spread the gospel. Now, if you were to open your Bible now to the earliest recorded gospel account, to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, you would read these words. This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. With the same imperial language, Mark announces that the ultimate good news, the euangelion for all the world is not in fact Caesar. But Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the true ruler of all the worlds. 
For all the gospel writers, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus were what all of history had been waiting for and revealed the key to understanding all that had gone before. And like the gospel of Caesar Augustus, this was not some private truth to be kept to oneself. This news needed to be shared. N.T. Wright said this, the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story which is the story of the whole world. It is public truth. The resurrection of Christ has cosmic significance because it marks the beginning of God's renewal of all of creation when through Christ, he would put the world back to rights. This morning, my daughters, Ember and Livy, wanted to bring flowers to place on the cross outside, in case you're wondering what that was all about. Um, in their own childlike way, they wanted to, to recognize and celebrate the beauty of an empty cross, the beauty of an empty tomb. But in the words of Bob Dylan, behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. And it's impossible to talk about resurrection without acknowledging the crucifixion. Without the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ would be impossible. So today I want to talk about the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm going to use three words, revelation, relationship, and response. So let's start with revelation. The gospel of Christ is the announcement that God has fulfilled the promises he has made to his people all throughout scripture, that he would reconcile the world to himself through the coming of the Messiah. Jesus was God in human form, the image of the invisible God, ushering in the rule and reign of God, referred to in scripture as the kingdom of God. Colossians 1 tells us this, all the fullness of God dwells in him. And through him, he would reconcile to himself all things on earth by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the perfect revelation of what God is like. And this revelation was absolutely scandalous. This king and this kingdom were radically different from the kings and kingdoms of this world who pursue power and empire. This king entered the world as a baby, entered Jerusalem humbly riding on a donkey, hung on a cross innocent, and yet dying a criminal's death. This kingdom is hidden in weakness and humility. A God who would reign and, and rule in power and, and subdue their enemies through force and control. Yes, the people could get behind that. A God on a throne? Absolutely. But a God on a cross? A God who would voluntarily suffer? No, this, this kind of God was unfathomable. And in our world today, I wonder, are we any different? In a culture that idolizes strength, success, image, and power, can we recognize the beauty of a cross that looks like failure and defeat? A beauty that is unconventional and the complete antithesis of the ways and means of empire. It is essential that our theology of God is faithful to God's revelation of himself. And God's revelation of himself is Christ on a cross. The cross is a symbol of total identification with the suffering of this world. The cross is the deepest revelation of what our God is like. God's love is cruciform, a love that is willing to suffer, a love that is self-sacrificial, that is poured out for the redemption and flourishing of others. 
Last week, Patrick mentioned the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus who had died. And we're told in John 11 that when Jesus arrived at the home, he told the sisters, Mary and Martha, that, that his, their brother would rise again. And yet, even though Jesus knew he would raise him, we're told that when he saw the sisters weeping, that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, the original Greek here means to quake with rage. When he arrives at the tomb, he once again is deeply moved. But the original Greek means to roar or snort with anger like a lion or a bull. Jesus wasn't crying quiet tears of sympathy at a graveside. At the very least, he was yelling out in anger at the reality of the death of someone he loved because death was an affront to God's good creation. This was the greatest comfort to me when I watched someone I loved suffer and die. When everything in me was screaming at the wrongness of death, it brought me comfort to know that Jesus not only wept with me, but that he had raged at death just like I did. And because of that, he had made a way through his own suffering and death to defeat sin and death once and for all. The cross of Christ reveals to us a God whose love would stop at nothing to defeat sin and death and darkness and bring people into glorious resurrection life. A God who would absorb all of our sin and shame, our, our cancer and our crimes, our vanity and our violence, that he would take upon himself all of the pain of the world, past, present and future, and by his wounds, we might be healed. Resurrection means that there is something that death cannot take, that there is love that outlives death. There is hope here and now because our hope is a person who has already triumphed over the powers of sin and death and is alive right now, ruling the whole world. I wonder if you believe that this morning. Amen. The resurrection reveals to us the incomprehensible power and majesty of God. On this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the reality not only that Jesus lived, but that Jesus is Lord, and that all who accept the message of the risen Christ can live in forgiveness and freedom and hope, not just waiting to get to heaven when we die, but experiencing heaven and eternity invading our lives here and now. Throughout the biblical story, we witness the momentum of God's redemptive love moving towards humanity, pursuing relationship. This is the Missio Dei, the mission of God. The biblical story begins with shalom, with unfractured relationship, with perfect intimacy and communion. Through temptation and deception, God's good and perfect creation became distorted by sin. Hata or sin in Hebrew speaks of failure, of missing the goal. Well, what is the goal? Our goal is to live fully as image-bearing people of God, loving God and others with the honor they deserve. Hamartia, which is the Greek, speaks of sin as a power that rules over us. It's our, our selfish impulses acting for our own benefit at the expense of another. Very capable of deceiving ourselves that our bad decisions are actually good ones all of which leads to layers of re relational breakdown causing shame and brokenness and disconnection. 
But God's desire has always been for unbroken relationship with his creation. And so the Missio Dei began culminating in the life and death of Jesus to put back together what was always supposed to be together. Even though Jesus was sinless, he took full responsibility for humanity's failures. And by doing so, he defeated its power. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Everything that was lost through the fall is restored through him because Christ's life becomes a covering for all of our failures. Our relationship to God, self, others, and all of creation is redeemed. Jesus is the doorway to the life that is truly life. And that invitation is for every single person without exception. Dallas Willard says this, to be the light of life, to deliver God's life to women and men where they are and as they are, is the secret of the enduring relevance of Jesus. Suddenly they are flying right side up in a world that makes sense. And yet, I would add, Dallas, that we are flying right side up, but in a kingdom that is upside down, at least compared to the values of this world. Union with God is a gift of grace, and it does not come on the cheap. Grace is costly. Just as there is no resurrection without the crucifixion, so there is no resurrection life without first dying to self. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Most of us already know all the details of the Easter story. But the question is not so much what we know, but what will we do with what we know? In light of all of this, how then shall we live? This will affect how we speak, how we parent, what we prioritize, how we consume, how we treat our friends, how we treat complete strangers, how we forgive. It calls us to live fully as image bearers of a good and beautiful God. Eugene Peterson, um, who wrote the message paraphrase of the Bible, he says that we get the Jesus life by living the Jesus truth, the Jesus way. The way of Jesus is cruciform. We find our lives by losing them. We relinquish our power. We surrender our own agendas. We give our lives for the flourishing of others. This is the upside down kingdom of God. And there may be some of you sitting here today who are thinking, okay, do you really expect me to believe that this Middle Eastern peasant was not only a good teacher, but was actually God and that he knows the way that I was always meant to live and has made a way through his own death for me to actually have that life and that he not only died, but came back to life altering human history forever and that somehow all of that has bearing on my life. Yes, <laughs> that's absolutely what I'm trying to say. And maybe you can, might come back and say, Gemma, isn't all of this just a nice but pretty unbelievable story? I confess that as I've been preparing for today, I've wrestled with feeling this temptation to, to offer compelling and intellectually persuasive arguments for the plausibility of the gospel. But the truth is that I'm yet to meet anyone who is a follower of Jesus simply because they became intellectually convinced. 
All through scripture, we read phrases like come and see, taste and see. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. All of this implies that relationship with Jesus is embodied and experiential. Much like me as a young child on Easter Sunday mornings, it's the felt experience that compels us. It's the presence of the risen Christ in our lives that causes us to say, surely this man is the Son of God. Epistemology is the study of, of how we know what we know. Um, in Hebrew culture, knowing and doing weren't separated. Knowing something implied concern and care, responsibility and action. And some might say that you can know a frog by dissecting it. But I wonder how that kind of knowing compares with, with Jane Goodall, who, who got to know chimpanzees by living among them, by cultivating relationship through vulnerability and responsibility over time. In contrast, dissecting a frog seems rather cold and detached. And when it comes to knowing Jesus, we can remain an objective observer, distant and detached, dissecting, scrutinizing, or we can come and see. We can experience the truth of who he is by following him and living according to the way that he lived. Today, I'm, I'm not here to prove to you the existence of God, nor to give you 10 reasons why you should reconsider the Easter story to be more than something you learned in Sunday school. But let me simply ask you this question. If this isn't the story that you believe yourself to be living in, then what story are you living in? And does it dignify and make sense of the wonder and woundedness of your human experience? At some point, all of us are forced to reckon with the question, what is the meaning or value of my life? In the words of Leo Tolstoy, what will come of what I will do today or tomorrow? Is there in life any purpose which the inevitable death that awaits me does not undo or destroy? A lot is at stake in the worldview that we hold. Last week, Patrick um, reminded us that we all worship something. We, we all serve a king of some sort. The real question is, is who is it or what is it? And is the branch you were hanging your heart on able to carry the weight of it? In the teaching text today, the angels ask the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? And isn't that so often what we do? We look for life in places of death. We look for life in places that will never fully satisfy us, that promise but don't deliver, but we keep going back to them and back to them because they almost work. But it only exacerbates our loneliness, leaving us with this gnawing sense of, of homesickness, but we're not really sure where home is anymore. And all the while, Jesus, who calls himself the resurrection and the life, is fully available stretching out his nail-pierced hands towards us saying, come and see, come and touch, come and taste, come and know, come and discover the wholeness that is finding your home in me. Um, a man called Julian Barnes wrote a memoir entitled Nothing to be Frightened of, in which he, he wrestles with the reality of death. And in it, he writes these words, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. There are so many longings in the depth of the human soul that simply cannot be answered by the questions our world is asking. 
There is more to life than scientific secularism can account for. Our loves and longings, hope, beauty, suffering, virtue, these cannot be reduced to mere matter or chemistry. Those of us who have tasted the kingdom of God and the life of Christ believe that these kinds of questions are answered in Jesus and his love. Christianity is not a set of truths and doctrines to be believed or a bunch of rules to be kept. Christianity is primarily a person. Christianity is Jesus and he invites us to walk with him in relationship and through doing so, discover that life in the kingdom of God is the good life. The life that leads us to wholeness and healing and restoration. The central message of the early followers of Jesus was the availability of the personal reign of God through entrusting oneself to the person of Jesus. And this message not only needed to be heard, but it also demanded a response. Our spirituality, whatever it is, is very simply how we live in response to God. Dallas Willard wrote this, when we see Jesus as he is, we must turn away or else shamelessly adore him. The Easter story prevents us from any alternative. Um, some years ago, there was a, a significant research project carried out into the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. And in the findings, the writer suggests that the de facto dominant religion of American teenagers is what he calls MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. These are people who believe that it's important to be morally good, um, to be nice and fair and to act kindly. They're also people who believe that the main purpose of God or religion is to make us feel good. Their deism is, is a view of God who is there, um, but kind of distant, and certainly doesn't make any demands. His job is simply to solve our problems so we can continue feeling good and happy. Think divine butler meets cosmic therapist. Now, before we all get on our high horses and start exclaiming, oh, teenagers these days, uh, the book was published in 2005. The research happened quite some time before that. So I will let you do the math and figure out where you find yourself in that timeline. But many of us, if we are honest, we want all the good things of the kingdom. We like the idea of hope, joy, peace, justice, resurrection, life. I mean, who doesn't? We just want it without it requiring anything of us. We want it while still being able to pursue all the desires of our flesh. But when we invert the gospel, making it primarily about self, it is Christianity without Christ. Or as Mark Sayers calls it, the kingdom without the king. Maybe a king who invaded human history to be in an intimate relationship with us might want more than a transactional or functional interaction. Maybe a king who lays his life down for the people he loves might invite us to do the same one choice at a time. G.K. Chesterton famously said, the problem of Christianity is not that it had been tried and found wanting, but that it had been found difficult and left untried. The Easter story invites us to accept or deny the Lordship of Christ. There's even room, like Peter did, to wonder to ourselves what is happening here, to not fully understand yet. But what there is not room for is to make God our pet, 
to domesticate this unpredictable, unfathomable, wild and beautiful God, to make this glorious gospel something that is merely consumed or diluted to suit our preferences. I think perhaps for some of us, it's not so much that we're against the story. We've just kind of become indifferent to it. We are disenchanted. We believe that life can be lived in full color, but we just can't seem to escape the sepia tones. How do we recapture the wonder? How do we wake up to the reality of the unfinished story of scripture and our place in it? Well, let me ask you this. How was Jesus raised from the dead? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.11 says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity and the life of God within us. I, I can't really remember a time when I didn't know that God loved me. I think I've always just believed that Jesus was my friend. But it was when I truly said yes to the unrestrained activity of the Holy Spirit in my life that my life with God changed from black and white to color. It was when I said, okay, you can come in to this part of me too. Okay, yeah, you can have this area of my life as well. You can have all of me. You can move freely and wildly in me. And then the Holy Spirit awakened me to the present reality of the kingdom of God, not just something future and far off, but something here and nigh and closer than my skin. And sometimes this felt like fire and wind and earthquake, but more often than not, it felt like a gentle whisper. It just felt like Jesus calling my name. In the Gospel of John, when we read the resurrection narrative, Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener and Jesus asks her, who are you looking for? But then Jesus says her name, Mary. And hearing her name, it's just like she knows everything she needs to know. This isn't about seeking the spectacular. We recapture the wonder by inviting the risen presence of Jesus into the ordinariness of our lives through the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. There is um, this prophetic picture in Ezekiel 27 in the Old Testament, and it's of a valley of dry bones. And God asks the prophet, son of man, can these bones live? And God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. And this is what God says to these dry, lifeless bones on the valley floor. I will put my breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And the spirit of God came, breath entered them and they came to life and they stood up a vast army. And I can't help but wonder what might come of the church, capital C, if all of those who have become disillusioned and disenchanted became re-enchanted by the Spirit of God to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. God has revealed himself to us in Christ. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we have been invited into a relationship of intimacy that defines our lives, creating meaning and purpose, giving hope and life. But we must respond. And for some, maybe that means saying yes to Jesus for the very first time. I can't think of a better Sunday than Easter Sunday to do that. Perhaps for some of us today, the response is similar to doing what Peter did. In spite of thinking that the woman was talking nonsense, as the disciples believed the women were doing, Peter followed his curiosity. He allowed it to move his feet and take him on a journey to the empty tomb. In spite of his skepticism, to look inside, to peer into the mystery and begin to wonder to himself what had happened here and what might it mean for his life and his story. It's always been a great comfort to me to know that one of the greatest evangelists in history started as a skeptic. Most of them did. In just a moment, we're going to move into a time of, of worship and prayer, and there's going to be an opportunity to make a response, whatever the appropriate response for you might be. But before we do that, I want us to listen to some words from Scripture, from Colossians 1. And I'm actually just going to invite you to stand with me as I read these over us. <laughs> I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes. You can stretch out your hands in a posture of receiving. Let's remember that, that picture from the beginning of all those seeds falling on us in this room. The word of God wanting to land in a place of good soil where the word of God in us would bear fruit. Let's listen to these words and receive them. Christ was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all of the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. When the risen Jesus did appear to his disciples, twice he said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And, and he wasn't just saying, you know, don't worry or don't be afraid. He was declaring shalom. Shalom Alehem. Wholeness, healing, flourishing, life. This is how it was in the beginning. And Jesus has made that reality possible now through his death and resurrection. And one day, 
One day, my friends, we will know the fullness of that shalom when heaven invades earth and the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. But in the midst of the in-between, between the now and the not yet, I pray over us, peace be with you. Peace be with you, shalom, shalom, wholeness and healing and resurrection life fill you today and every day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.